0: Hello everyone, this is Rabbi Michael Hatton and welcome to Tanakhstudy.com. Our section today, chapter 21 of Sefer B'midbar, verses 1 through 9, continues the account of the journey towards the land and records the travails of the people of Israel along the way. Last time, if you recall, we read about the refusal of the king of Edom to allow the people of Israel to traverse his land. This was followed up by the death of Aharon and the investiture of Eleazar, his son, in his place. Backing up a little further, chapter 20 informed us of the people's arrival at Kadesh in the wilderness of Tsin, how they thirsted, how Moshe Naharon struck the rock and were condemned to perish. The overview of the entire section is that it describes the last year of the people of Israel's wanderings, as the journey towards the land finally commences in earnest. This journey is colored by thirst, by hunger, and by desperate impatience to reach the destination. To go back to the chronological markers, in Chapter 20, Miriam died in the first month, that is, the month of Nisan, of the final year. Aharon's death followed in the fifth month, the month of Av. By the end of Parshat Chukat, the people will be encamped at the plains of Moab, and the next chronological marker will appear at the beginning of Sefer Devarim. There we are informed that on the first day of the 11th month, that is to say the month of Shavuot, Moshe commences his final addresses to the people. Moshe will die in the 12th month, the month of Adar, according to the rabbinic tradition, and the people will cross the Arden on the 10th day of Nisan, 33 days after Moshe's death as recorded in Sefer Yehoshua. In sum total then, there is approximately one year which transpires between the death of Miriam, recorded in chapter 20, and the crossing of the Arden of the Jordan River by the people of Israel, recorded at the beginning of Sefer Yehoshua. Therefore, everything that we read now until the end of Sefer Bimidbar effectively takes place during this final year the year of the wanderings coming to an end the year of the journey towards the land our brief section can be divided into two smaller units the first consisting of only three verses records an encounter with the king of Arad it begins with a battle in which the people of Israel are bested, and concludes with their triumph over their foe. The next section, also short, verses 4 through 9, records the episode of the fiery serpents that attack the people of Israel as they make their way around the land of Edom. We will begin with the encounter with the king of Arad. The text records, chapter twenty-one, verse one, Vaishmah Melech Arad Yoshev Ha ki VaYisrael Derech HaAtarim, vaYilachem BiYisrael, vaYishp Mimenu Shevi. The Canaanite king of Arad, who dwelt in the Negev, heard of the approach of the people of Israel by way of Atarim. He battled against the people of Israel and captured captives from them. The attack of the king of Arad is unprovoked. Arad is located at some distance from where the people of Israel are stationed, close to Hor-Hahar, where Aharon had died. Probably tens of kilometers are traversed by the king of Arad as he makes his way to attack this so-called derecha atarim the way of the atarim is a secondary route on the western side of the jordan river it ascends from the negev through the hill country and continues northwards according to the rashbam the word atarim is an extended form of the word tarim. Latur means to travel or to tour. And therefore, derecha atarim means the way of the travelers. Similarly, says Rashbam, we have a biblical word efroach, which means a young chick. But the root actually is parach, as the aleph drops away. Parach is to blossom and therefore describes an egg that has hatched. The word etmol, yesterday, has an additional aleph. The short form is temol, which means yesterday. And occasionally in the Hebrew Bible we come across the word ezroah. Instead of the more familiar form zroah, which means the forearm. Essentially, says the Rashbam, Derech HaAtarim means Derech HaTarim, the way of those that travel. And the king of Arad therefore heads off the people of Israel before they make their way along this route. Perhaps the king of Arad felt threatened by the approach of the people of Israel at the same time, Dericha Atarim is an echo. It is an echo of Parshat Shelach Lecha, the sending of the spies, in chapter 13. Shelach Lecha Nashim Vyaturu Eretz Kanaan. Send men that they might spy out Viaturu, the land of Kanaan. This word Viaturu is, of course, the same root according to the Rashbam. As derech haatarim, and this therefore leads the rabbis to explain in the midrash that derech haatarim was the very same way that the spies had taken as they traveled forty years earlier in order to spy out the land. Remember that at the at the time Moshe had instructed them, aluze vanegev, vaalitem et ha'har, go up through the Negev and ascend into the hill country, and spy out the land to see what it is like. Essentially, derecha atarim, therefore, is the route that one would take if one were to travel through the Negev and head into the hill country of the land of Israel. An important station along the route is none other than the city of Arad, We can therefore readily understand why the king of Arad, although far away from the encampment of the people of Israel, would nevertheless have felt threatened by their imminent approach. And therefore, as it were, he heads them off at the pass, attacking them unprovoked before they begin their journey. The text continues. Verse number two. After the people of Israel have been bested in battle, and captives have been taken. Vayidar Yisrael neder ladunai vayomar, im ten et ha'am hazebiadi biyadi, et arehem. The people of Israel pledged to God with an oath, saying, if you will give this people into my hands, which is to say, I will defeat them, v'hacharamti et arehem, I will destroy or perhaps utterly dedicate their cities. Va'yishma adunai be'kol va'yiten etakna'ani, va'yacharem ve'et va'yikra shem hamakom God heard the people of Israel and their prayer. He gave the Canaanites into their hand, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. They therefore called that place Chorma. The counterattack begins with the people of Israel taking a neder, Vayidar Yisrael. A neder, an oath, is often undertaken in the Tanakh at a time of crisis. Remember that Yaakov undertakes an oath as he leaves the land behind and journeys into the unknown. In Breshit, chapter 28, Vayidar Yaakov neder lemor Yaakov pronounced an oath, and he said, If you will take care of me and look over me, then I will dedicate one-tenth of my possessions to you. In Shoftim, chapter 11, Yiftach takes an oath. On the eve of his battle with the Ammonites, Whosoever will come out to greet me from the portals of my home, I will sacrifice to God. In Shmuel Aleph, Perak Aleph, desperate for a child, undertakes an oath. If you will give me a child, then I will give that child back to you to serve you at the Mishkan. In all of these examples, the taking of an oath is meant, as it were, to create the merits that are necessary to tip the balance. I pledge, I commit, I take upon myself some sort of a dedicatory action to God and I hope that God responds in kind by granting my need, my wish or my request. Therefore the people of Israel pronounce a vow If you allow me to defeat this people, v'hacharamti et arehem. The word v'hacharamti, sometimes translated as "I will utterly destroy" or "I will utterly dedicate," comes from the root chet resh mem, cherem. This word can have different connotations. It can mean to destroy, for instance. When idolatry is mentioned in Sefer Divarim, it's often this root which is used to discuss the attitude that must be demonstrated against idolatry. In Sefer Divarim chapter 7, for instance, the Torah warns us, For lo eva el betecha, do not bring an abomination, which is to say an idol, into your home. Lest you become cherem like it. Shakets to you shall surely treat it as abominable. Vetaev to taavenu, ki cherem because it is to be destroyed. At the same time, the root can also mean to dedicate something to God. That thus in Parshat Bechukotai, in the discussion of offerings to the Mishkan, we come across the idea of a cherim, which is to say something dedicated to the mishkan, or to God, which cannot be redeemed. Rashi's interpretation of the term here, the hacharamti et arehem, is akdish shilalam lagavoha, I will dedicate the spoils to God and make no use of them. And actually recalls Joshua's battle against Yericho, where the spoils were in fact dedicated to God. In Rabbinic Hebrew, the word cherem means a ban. One can be placed under a cherem and effectively excommunicated from the community. There's even a parallel in Arabic. A harem or a harem are women that are specially dedicated to the potentate. In a slightly different usage, the Temple Mount is known in Arabic as Haram al-Sharif, the noble enclosure, that is to say, that which is off-limits. The basic meaning of the root Kherem is that which is off-limits. This can mean something which is subject to destruction, because of its idolatrous essence, or it can mean something which is wholly dedicated to God and will not be used by anyone else. B'nai Israel prevail in the battle, and they in fact fulfill their vow. What's most striking in the passage is the fact that the people of Israel take initiative. The king of Arad attacks them, takes captives, and the people of Israel pronounce a vow and counterattack. They prevail, they defeat, they triumph, and they fulfill their vow. It truly is a story of Israelite initiative. Interestingly enough, in the Midrash, Melech Arad, the king of Arad who dwells in the Negev, is none other than Amalek, in disguise. As Rashi puts it, the Amalekites disguised their language to speak Canaanite. This was an order to trick the people of Israel. The people of Israel would pray to God for victory over Canaanites, not realizing that they were fighting Amalekites. People of Israel noticed, Rashi says, that the king of Arad And his soldiers were dressed as Amalekites, even as they seemed to be speaking Canaanite. Therefore, the people of Israel, concludes Rashi, offered a generic prayer, "Imnaton titen etam hazebiadi." If you will allow me to defeat this people, without designating whether they were Canaanite or whether they were Amalekite. Interestingly enough, this midrashic identification of the king of Arad with the Amalekites may in fact be inspired by intertextual parallels. Recall, in Sefer shmut chapter 17, after the people of Israel had crossed the Sea of Reeds and entered into the wilderness, they came to Rephidim. Their entry into the wilderness was inaugurated by an unprovoked attack by Amalek. Vayavo Amalek Vayilachem Israel Birfidim, the people of Amalek came and they attacked the people of Israel at Rifidim. Vayavo Amalek implies that they came from afar. Essentially the story was an unprovoked attack by a foe that came from afar and attempted to harm the people of Israel. This takes place as they first enter the wilderness. In our story, of course, we discuss the final stages of the wilderness journey and the preparations to leave it behind forever. This exit from the wilderness is marked by another unprovoked attack, this time by Melech Arad. Effectively, we have a bracketing effect The experience of the wilderness is inaugurated by an unprovoked attack and it is ended with an unprovoked attack. Perhaps this led the Midrashic rabbis to identify Melech Arad with none other than Amalek. Of course, as I mentioned earlier, the route taken by the king of Arad is associated with the route taken by the spies, Derech Ha'atarim, Perhaps we have in our story then echoes of earlier failures and vulnerabilities. The phantom of the spies and of the attack of Amalek hover over the scene. But whereas in the earlier story, the people of Israel were passive and victims unable to defend themselves without miraculous intervention, in this version of the story, the people of Israel take the initiative They attack their foe, and they prevail. The earlier story is a story of weakness, of passivity, and of defeat. Our story is a story of action, and a story of triumph. In effect, then, the Midrashic identification of the king of Arad with the Amalekites may be an amplification of what is already implied by the pshat, by the straightforward reading of the text that is to say what we are witnessing at this point in the story is the transformation of the people of Israel now ready to enter into the land in the second section verses 4 through 9 the journey continues They traveled from Mount Hor by way of Yamsuf in order to circle the land of Edom, and the people became weary along the way. The people are now forced to take a circuitous route around the land of Edom since the king earlier denied them safe passage. This traveling, derech yamsuf, by way of yamsuf, located at Eilat, once again recalls the story of the miraglim. Remember that in the aftermath of that debacle, God had told the people, you will not enter the land, but will instead turn back and go by way of yamsuf, in chapter 14. Perhaps it is the fear of an additional delay, which which leads the people to lose heart. V'tiktsar nefesh ha'am The people became short of spirit. Rashi translates b'torach ha'derech Not along the way, but because of the way. Because of the journey that was difficult. Amru, they said, we were so close to entering the land. And now we are retreating. Retracing our earlier steps, this is exactly what happened to our forefathers, our ancestors, who spent 38 fruitless years in the wilderness until this very day. And therefore, concludes Rashi, L'fichach katzra nafsham Therefore, their souls became short, which is to say they became impatient because of the travails along the way. I'm in now verse 5. The people spoke out against God and against Moshe. Why have you taken us out of the land of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread and there is no water. Our souls are sickened with lechem hakilokel, the bread that is kilokel. This complaint speaks to their desperate impatience to leave the wilderness and to enter the land. Although the manna provided sustenance, it was not bread. Ein lechem, we do not have bread that we have grown. Ein mayim, we do not have water that we have secured. We live in a state of limbo, and our soul is sick of lechem hakilokel. Ibn Ezra translates kilokel from the root kal, which is to say that which is light and insubstantial. We would prefer bread and not manna. The chizkuni goes a step further. Lechem hakilokel, kilokel is similar to kilkul, which is ruin, or destruction. Lechem hakilokel, this ruinous food that we would prefer to no longer eat. Now God sends the nechashim ha-sirafim. Vayishalach Adonai ba'am eit ha-nechashim ha-sirafim ha'am vayamot amrav mi-Yisrael. God sent against the people the fiery serpents who bit the people and many of the people of Israel perished. The fieriness refers probably to the poison venom of these creatures. These dangerous denizens of the midbar, of the wilderness, can deliver a lethal bite. In the Midrash, of course, which Rashi mentions, and Ibn Ezra acknowledges the serpent is a classic speaker of lashon hara of negative talk of evil talk and recalls the story in Genesis where the Nahash leads Chava astray and encourages her to eat from the tree that God had forbidden the Midrash Suggests that the people of Israel are therefore being punished, mida keneged mida, measure for measure. They spoke out about the manna. They spoke out about their situation in in spite of God's providential care, effectively speaking, lashon hara. And therefore, they are punished by being attacked by the serpents. But the people do chuva. Verse number seven relates, After they are bitten, Kidi vadunai eladunai via alenu The people came to Moshe and they said, We have sinned, we have spoken against God and against you. Pray on, pray on our behalf to God, so that He remove from upon us this serpent plague and Moshe prayed on behalf of the people. Moshe prays without hesitation. While he may have been personally hurt by the people's accusations, it does not stop him from immediately attempting to alleviate their plight. Vayomer Moshe saraf God said to Moshe, prepare a saraf, a fiery serpent, and place it upon a standard or upon a pole so that anyone who was bitten will gaze upon it and will live. Moshe does so. The pole, or the standard, is here indicated by the Hebrew word ness, And in fact, the word nes in the Tanakh means precisely that. Depending on the context, it can be the mast of a ship, it can be a tall pole, it can be a flag which flutters at a great height. All of those are a ness. In Rabbinic Hebrew, of course, the word also means a miracle. And this is a derivative of the same idea that which is obvious, that which is visible, that which is seen from afar is essentially what a miracle is. So therefore the Ness of the Tanakh becomes transformed into the Ness of Rabbinic Hebrew. Moshe al ish Moshe prepared a serpent of Nechoshet and he placed it upon a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten a man, he would look at the serpent of Nechoshet and he would live. Moshe prepares the serpent from Nechoshet. Nechoshet is a metal, In its pure form, it means copper. As an alloy, it could mean bronze. Bronze being an alloy of copper and tin. Bronze is, of course, much more sturdy than copper. But in this particular context, it may have been either one. Effectively, this is an alliteration. Nechash, nechoshet, sound very similar. Perhaps Nachash is called a Nachash because its color is like the color of Nechoshet. In any case, Moshe prepares a serpent out of copper or bronze and raises it up high. The commentaries are absolutely adamant that no idolatry or iconography could possibly be implied by this Nahash. As Ibn, Ezra, as Ibn Ezra puts it, in very strong terms, Khalila Khalila. God forbid that this should be anything but the fulfillment of God's command, and God's wisdom surpasses our own. Which is to say for the Ibn Ezra, we do not know why God commanded this particular item in order to provide healing. Nor can we rationally explain by what mechanism the serpent healed. The Ramban, in a different formulation, understands that effectively the healing is here achieved through the agency of the thing that caused the harm itself, which is, of course, counterintuitive. We would not expect healing to be accomplished by something which is lethal. Ramban says that it is similar to Elisha's miracle of healing the tainted waters at Jericho. This story, in Sefer Melachim, Kings 2, chapter 2, verse 21, indicates that when the people approached Elisha and requested him to heal the waters of Jericho, he threw salt into them, which of course is counterintuitive. One would not expect salt to make the waters more potable, Quite the contrary. The Ramban therefore concludes, God commanded that the people should be healed by that very lethal thing which had brought upon them this death in the first place. Lehodiam ki Hashem Meet umechaye to drive home in no uncertain terms that it is God who kills and God who revives. The Sforno, on the other hand, understands that placing the serpent on the standard was a reminder to the people of their transgression, Kedeshiyas Kirlehem Avonam, and for this reason, this particular image was selected. In the classic Mishnaic formulation, at the end of chapter three of tractate Rosh Hashanah. We read the following. The Mishnah draws a parallel. Shemot chapter 17 reports in the battle against the Malek that when Moshe raised his hands, the people of Israel would prevail. And when his hands fell, they would be defeated. Does that indicate, asks the Mishnah, that Moshe's hands either won the battle or lost it? Not at all. As long as the people of Israel looked heavenwards, and would subjugate their hearts to their Father in heaven, they would prevail. Otherwise, they would be defeated. Similarly, the Mishnah quotes our episode, Prepare a serpent and place it on a standard so that whoever sees it who has been bitten will live. Is it then the serpent who kills or the serpent who revives? Not at all, says the Mishnah. clean clape mala when the people of Israel would gaze heavenward and subjugate their hearts to their father in heaven, they would be healed. Otherwise, they would waste away. Effectively, the Mishnah is suggesting that it is not Moshe's hands raised up high, nor the serpent on the pool that brings victory and healing, but rather the gaze heavenwards, and the subjugation of our hearts to God's will. Essentially, it is the tshuva, the repentance of the people of Israel, that wins the day. Of course, it's instructive to note, to recall our earlier discussion, that according to this Mishnah and Rosh Hashanah, once again we have an implied linkage between the battle against Amalek on the one hand, and the serpent which follows The battle against the king of Arad, on the other hand, as if somehow the king of Arad and the Amalekites may in fact be transposed one with the other. It is instructive to note that in the end, this this Nachash, this serpent image, was in fact shattered and destroyed by King Chizkiyahu, in a story recorded in the second book of Kings, chapter eighteen. Hezekiah was a great religious reformer. And he ruled over the kingdom of Yehudah on the eve of the Assyrian invasion in the 8th century BCE. The text records, he did that which was righteous in the eyes of God, as his ancestor David had done. He tore down the high places. He broke down the idolatrous stones he cut down the idolatrous trees. Verse number four of chapter eighteen records, "Vechitat nechash sa He smashed the bronze serpent which Moshe had prepared, because in those days the people of Israel would offer it incense and call it nechushtan. Effectively, at some point in Israelite history, this bronze serpent became an idolatrous object of worship, and therefore Chizkiyahu, in the end, destroyed it. This, of course, indicates his ardor and his fervor, as well as his courage in taking something beloved to the people with great historical value, having been fashioned by Moshe himself, and recalling an important event in their collective memory and destroying it because it had become idolatry.